0: This is the Imagination Redeemed podcast, a podcast of the Anselm Society. How are we supposed to grapple with the past, the good, the bad, and the ugly? Why does the Bible talk about remembering so much? And can storytelling be a way to use the past to remind ourselves who we are? In this episode, we'll continue with our series about why we create with a focus on this month's theme, which is memory. My name is Brooke McIntyre, and usually I'm on the other side of the microphone, scheduling and posting episodes, but today I'm excited to share with you Heidi White's essay about memory and telling ourselves our own story. Before we get to that, though, I want to remind you all of our upcoming Imagination Redeemed Conference, which is happening in Colorado Springs on September 30th and October 1st. You can get tickets and find out more by visiting our website, which is anselmsociety.org. All right, as I was saying, our theme this month is memory, and we asked Heidi White to contribute this month's essay. Heidi White is a writer, educator, researcher, lecturer, and one of Anselm Society's board members. So let me read to you Heidi's contribution to our ongoing Why We Create series. The oldest Greek mythologies tell the story of all-powerful Zeus, the father of gods and men, and his lover, Nemezine the goddess of memory and language. Zeus visits Nemezine for nine consecutive nights, and she gives birth to nine daughters called the Muses who become the goddesses of art and learning. The Muses invent music, astronomy, philosophy, geometry, grammar, rhetoric, poetry, painting, sculpture, theater, architecture, drawing, and dance. Delighted by their creations, the Muses in turn inspire worthy humans to imitate them, thereby forging a fruitful bond between divine and human creativity. The analogy, of course, is rather straightforward. The union of God and memory begets creativity. Memory has always been the fundamental ground of being of art and culture. What we remember makes us who we are. We create artifacts in order to memorialize, to preserve, to remember. Even destructive or revolutionary art is based on memory insofar as it revolts against it, reminding us that our personal and public memories often hold immense cruelty, injustice, suffering, and distortion. Memory is at once individual, communal, and spiritual. And on all three levels, memory endures mainly in images and narratives. Indeed, memory nearly always enshrines itself in myth. In his masterful treatise on Christian classical education entitled Norms and Nobility, David Hicks distinguishes between two fundamental kinds of knowledge, logos and mythos, which roughly correspond to reason and imagination. According to Hicks, the mythos represents man's imaginative and ultimately spiritual effort to make this world intelligible. The logos sets forth his rational attempt to do the same. Mythos, then, is the basis of imaginative work, art, music, literature, poetry, dance, and the like. Logos is the basis of rational work, philosophy, mathematics, engineering, theology, and the sciences, and other disciplines that apply human reason. These two ways of knowing belong together as intertwining threads, but modernity wants to rip them asunder. The drab epistemology of the modern wasteland insists that logos is true and mythos is false, useful only as entertainment, propaganda, or syllabi. In response, dissident subcultures such as New Age religions and popular pseudopsychologies elevate mythos to bizarre heights. Christians are not exempt from modernity's denuding of knowledge. Instead, Western Christians are often conditioned from within the church to understand faith as logos, but not as mythos. Others reject the propositional logos of the faith to interpret the Christian story as mere mythology. Thus, mythos and logos are pitted against each other, and we are put in the position of choosing a side. But this division is an utterly false and diabolical dichotomy. Christianity is at once rational and mystical, true and beautiful, intellectual and imaginative. Through Christ, the historic Christian faith is the nexus and the union of imaginative mythos and rational logos. The Renaissance of the Christian imagination is reclaiming the vital, essential role of mythos in human formation. This does not mean that the faith is a myth in the sense that it is a lie or metaphor. Rather, Christianity is mythos in the sense that it is a meaning-making story that ennobles and forms the soul. Hicks speaks to the power of such stories. A good myth, like a good map, enables the wanderer to survive, perhaps even to flourish in the wilderness. Although Hicks writes specifically about education in his treatise, his words apply beyond their immediate context. Indeed, Hicks argues for a vision of education that instills the entire mythos and logos of culture. He invites us to the pursuit of a Christian paideia, a concept deeply appropriate to the Christian creative efforts, because paideia is the Greek word for both education and culture. To the Greeks, there was no distinction between the education of an individual and the cultivation of the culture that forms the communal life of that individual. A person is a microcosm dwelling within rings of three concentric circles. Each individual self exists in the smallest innermost ring, surrounded and enclosed by a larger ring that is a communal society with its normative way of life surrounded still farther out by the universal circle. That is the realm of eternal transcendence or the permanent things as GK Chesterton called them. These permanent things are the eternal realities like holiness, goodness, truth, beauty, love, justice, wisdom, and the like to the ancient mind. Paideia was the whole package. All three circles passed intact from one generation to the next. In the Republic, Socrates argues that the city is like the soul. Both proceed from pre-existing forms, and therefore we ought to rule our souls and our cities by the standard of the eternal good. Socrates' unified vision for the virtuous life articulates the basis of ancient Paideia. Paideia offers a meaningful, unified, normative being in the world. It instills how to live individually, communally, and spiritually. Unlike the pagan version, however, Christian Paideia has the benefit of truth and completion through Christ. Socrates casts an idealistic vision, a shadow, but Christ is the source and the fulfillment of all logos and mythos. Developing and preserving a Christian Paideia is the beating heart of any meaningful renewal of Christian imagination. Hicks writes that it is for the world's fight and the soul's salvation. And this twofold mission is the telos, the purpose, goal, and ultimate end of Christian creative effort. Some may find the appeal for a Christian paideia overwhelming and unattainable, but thankfully we do not have to start from scratch. A rich and vast Christian paideia already exists in the church, the natural world, and the great tradition of art, literature, knowledge, exploration, and discovery. All truth and error throughout time and space, stand or fall in relation to God and therefore are included or disputed within the universal paideia that is the shared logos and mythos of creation from Eden until this very moment. Thus, we cultivate and preserve a Christian paideia, neither to reconstruct nor to overthrow, but to remember. We are not culture warriors, but culture keepers. Christians are the true guardians of the collective memory of the world. With this in mind, it becomes clear that personal and public narratives serve a fundamentally meaning-making function. Our identities are intrinsically tied to the stories we tell ourselves. To the private individual, this is the realm of psychology and spirituality, but in the public square, it is a matter of myth. Myths are stories that shape entire cultures. They are the basis of all paideia, embedded within us as the furniture of our minds. We become what we behold. George Washington confessing he chopped down the cherry tree. Daniel sleeping safely in the lion's den. Prometheus chained to the rock. Helen Keller thrusting her hand under the water pump. Icarus plummeting from the sky. Christ suffering on the cross. Some of these stories are fiction, some fact, but all are myths. Myths express eternal truths in simple narratives and images, holding enormous normative power for individuals and cultures. The meaning-making function of myth can be seen in these very pages. The story of the birth of the muses invites both simple acceptance and endless contemplation. Reams of learned pages could not plumb the depth and span the breadth of such a story. And that is only one myth, the telling of which is contained in one sense in a few sentences and in another, the whole world. Myth has the power to take us beyond ourselves, beyond our world, into the realm of transcendence. Myth both invites and defies interpretation and judgment. Because myth makes meaning, it entwines with the rational way of knowing, logos, with its inherent urge to interpret, to rightly define, quantify, compare, and understand. Myth's meaning-making faculty also unites with Logos to make judgments that lead to action. But Logos is more influenced by mythos than we recognize. For example, a materialist Paideia that elevates technological progress will treat a forest very differently than a pagan Paideia that believes in tree spirits dwelling within roots and branches. According to the one, trees are natural resources to be exploited. To the other, they are sacred vessels to be protected. Both interpretations and the resulting actions are based not merely on self-conscious logos, but on an underlying, often subconscious mythos. This aspect of mythos defies logical interpretation and rational judgment. In fact, it determines what we think of as rational. We simply do not recognize how profoundly story-formed we are. This is not to say that mythos is subjective. The modern mind wants to label logos objective and mythos subjective, but this is a mistake. Logical reasoning can lead to erroneous conclusions, just as inherited mythology can lead to flawed beliefs. The problem is not that people put their faith in myths, but that they put their faith in the wrong myth. C.S. Lewis recognized this. The story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference, that it really happened. The solution to the problem of mythos is not to reject myths, but to recover and redeem false myths with the Christian story. Christians are both the story keepers and the storytellers of the true myth. All of this raises vital questions about content. What should be included in our Christian Paideia? What do we do about false and wicked mythos and logos? How do we decide what to preserve and what to create? These vital questions bring us back to the importance of memory. The true myth is very old and much has been built upon it. So it behooves us to follow the following essential guiding principles in contemplating the development and preservation of Christian Paideia. First and foremost, Christian Paideia is founded on the true myth, which is the life of Christ. The gospel is the union of rational logos and imaginative mythos, the loveliest and truest story ever told. Everything that came before it led to it, and everything that happened since proceeded from it. Therefore, the proper place for building and keeping Christian Paideia is the church, which St. Paul called the pillar and ground of the truth. Christians who are faithful participants in the communal life of the church are nourished by word and sacrament, which are the united logos and mythos of the faith. Simply keeping the traditions of the church is a radical act of culture keeping in the contemporary wasteland. Secondly, for Christians, all is Christ's, not only within the church, but even outside it. Christian paideia gathers all knowledge and culture under Christ's authority. The misguided mythos of modernity elevates an imagined future above the actual past, but Christians must resist the temptation to forget the past because through Christ, all things belong to us. This is not to say that every artifact of cultural memory is good or true. Mythos may hold the collected memory of the world, but more often than not, the world got it wrong. Through Christ, however, we fill in the gaps. In his masterful sermon on Mars Hill in the book of Acts, St. Paul declares that the Athenian shrine to an unknown God opens up a cultural space for Christ to fill. Rather than degrading the surrounding pagan culture, Paul reclaims it as a Christian inheritance, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your poets have said. The idolatrous shrine and the Platonic poets are aspects of a false pagan mythos whose meaning St. Paul redeems through revelation, illuminating and transfiguring the vacant and flawed elements in light of Christ. The true myth reconciles the false myth. Later, St. Paul proclaims that all things are ours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and ye are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Christ reconciles all things to himself, including the world's cultural and intellectual heritage. The renaissance of the Christian imagination is a recovery effort and a creative one. We need Christian scholars, storytellers, readers, writers, educators, bards, curators, and enthusiasts. In fact, Christians ought to be the most exuberantly curious and intellectually hospitable people on the face of the earth because all things are ours. Thirdly, Christian Paideia is an unfolding story, not a closed canon. We need Christian creators in this generation, writers, poets, musicians, singers, dancers, painters, craftsmen, and more. Indeed, wrote Tolkien, only by myth-making, only by becoming sub-creators and inventing stories can man aspire to the state of perfection that he knew before the fall. Christians should be the most zealous and skilled artists in the world, but we do not hold to an empty belief in art for art's sake, nor do we create to express ourselves, save the world, accumulate glory, or win culture wars. Such creative ethics are foreign to us. Instead, Christians create to remember. The ancient myth of Odysseus tells of the hero's exile and homecoming. During his long years of perilous journeying, Odysseus' wife Penelope yearns for him. She raises her son to without his father. Meanwhile, debauched suitors vie for her hand, but she scorns them. To keep them at bay, wise Penelope announces that she cannot marry again until she weaves a burial shroud for her father-in-law, Laertes. Every day for three years, clever Penelope weaves the shroud by day and unravels it by night, buying time for her husband and lord to return. Like Penelope, we are the king's beloved, stranded in our own homeland, surrounded by dangers and temptations, yearning for the return of the king. The waiting is a Christian dilemma in every generation, which raises the question, while we wait for our Lord to return, what shall we do? We can imitate Penelope, who hatched a daring plan. She knew she could not save herself, but she could take action in the waiting. And what was that action? Penelope created something. She oriented her skill to creating an artifact, the shroud, that remembered the generation before her, Laertes, in order to preserve the one presently in her keeping, Telemachus. The shroud embodies far more than Penelope's quiet wisdom. It reveals the creative vocation. This is why we strive for a Christian paideia. Like Odysseus, our Lord is coming home, and when he does, he will slaughter the suitors, reclaim the land, and restore his bride to her rightful place beside him. He will wipe the tears from her eyes and crown her with glory for her faithfulness. Indeed, long after Penelope's shroud devolved into a heap of tangled string, the poets sang of prudent Penelope. The following tribute to Penelope is from the ghost of Agamemnon, whose own wife betrayed and murdered him. O fortunate son of Laertes, Odysseus of the many devices, surely you won yourself a wife endowed with great virtue. How good was proved the heart of blameless Penelope. Icarius's daughter, and how well she remembered Odysseus, her wedded husband. Thereby the fame of her virtue shall never die away, but the immortals will make for the people of earth a thing of grace in the Song for Prudent Penelope." Some scholars claim that the thing of grace, the Song for Prudent Penelope, is the Odyssey itself. If that's the case, we do well to imitate her wisdom. And what is that wisdom? She remembered her husband. Her great love for her absent bridegroom overflowed in offerings to the waiting. Every generation needs its Penelopes, the artists, poets, songwriters, and craftsmen who will weave and unravel artifacts that tell the true myth over and over again. Like Penelope, may we be prudent and faithful, and may it be said of us how well she remembered her wedded husband. You've been listening to a podcast of the Anselm Society in Colorado Springs. Our mission is a renaissance of the Christian imagination. We exist to help Christians remember who they are, to cultivate a deep awareness of their relationship to the great story, and to bring that awareness home to their families and churches. To find out more about us or to become a patron, please visit anselmsociety.org thanks for listening